0: You are listening to the Talking Tough podcast, the world's toughest men and women at their most vulnerable, their stories of triumph, their falls from grace, and their climb back to the top, to life. This is Rick Bassman here for Talking Tough on the Podcast One Network. Hey, all, it's Rick Bassman here, AKA Little Big Man on Talking Tough's Tall Tales, where every week, just for the hell of it, I tell a, uh, a story from life. And I try to uh, do my darndest to pick out something that you're going to find entertaining, amusing, um, controversial, thought-provoking, whatever you call it. Uh, I always like to say that. You know, I call it tall tales for a reason, because we know what that means. Tall tales means it's uh, made up or exaggerated or whatnot. So I like that name. But the beauty of all these stories is that I have either video or photographic evidence to back it up. So it makes it kind of fun. Anyway, um, the story I wanted to tell today is one that I call in my book, Me, the Movie Producer. Yes. Amongst everything else I've done or tried to do in life, I've actually produced two movies. Um, one of them is called The Love Master, pretty well-known comedian named Craig Schumacher, uh, with all kinds of interesting cameos. Uh, Farrah Fawcett was one, and I even ended up uh, staying in Farrah's and Ryan O'Neill's guest house for a month. During that, kind of babysitting Farrah because Ryan was away, and that's a that's a story for another day. Of course, the story I want to tell today is about a movie, and I use that term very loosely because I want to say this movie, The Misery Brothers, might be the biggest cinematic abomination of all time. And if not, it definitely, I mean, I know it's a big statement saying worst movie ever made, Um, but, uh, you know, for a movie that tried, that tried it to be good, that had real people in it, that had more than a $5 budget. Uh, this could be one of the worst ever made so it's called the misery brothers and shortly after i moved back to uh, los angeles from orlando where i was working for the walt disney company i got a call from a guy I become friendly with in orlando named pat armstrong he owned a uh, pretty successful record label called park entertainment parc and pat says rick i've got a friend in la or a business acquaintance that i'd love to introduce you to the guy makes movies He's looking for a producer for his next one. And uh, I mentioned you to him. He said, yeah, have him call me. And I'm like, Pat, <laughs> that's awesome. I appreciate it. Goes, I've never produced a movie before. He goes, you know you know entertainment. You know how to do live shows. You've done a bunch of television here at Disney. I'm sure you can figure it out. This guy runs a little fast and loose. It's not like you're going to interview with Steven Spielberg. He goes, give the guy a call. I'm like, OK, cool. Thank you. So I call. Uh, his name is Lorenzo Dumani. D-O-U-M-A-N-I. When I think of Lorenzo now, I kind of have to chuckle a little bit. But but really, think of him, um, you know, with fond thoughts. And it may, may not sound like that as the story unfolds, but it all uh, it all comes full circle eventually. I talked to Lorenzo on the phone briefly, and he says, "Yeah, come on over." So I head over to the Los Feliz district of LA, just old, kind of classic. Uh, district with a bunch of mansions and, and nice homes and whatnot, tree-lined streets, and I pull up to this house and I, I recognize it immediately and I didn't realize why till later. Um, Lorenzo's house, this is his LA house anyway, has the distinction of having been used as a location in more movies and TV shows than any other ever. So if you saw the house, you'd recognize it. There's been literally thousands of movies and TV shows. So I pull up it's a giant gothic Italian mansion, like itself, something straight out of a movie. And I, I go up to the door, I knock, or the, don't knock, I ring the bell. And it's like a bell in a movie. You hear it like kind of echo throughout the house. A honest to goodness butler opens the door, brings me into the foyer, which is the thing you really recognize most. That's the locations always used on TV and the movies. And I'm asked to wait there. And eventually I'm led to, uh the godfather's office and, and i call i call it that for a couple of reasons if you're to look lorenzo up you'll see now that he owns a couple of very big hotels and properties in las vegas very prominent businessman in vegas at that time his father who, who's uh, no longer with us was known as one of the like you know top guys if you get what i'm saying in las vegas uh waste management business waste disposal business. But one of the top guys and the rumor had it that uh, the father, Lorenzo's father, would give Lorenzo money to basically stay away, keep out of his business and go do his own thing. So Lorenzo took these millions of dollars his father would give him and made movies. (laughs) None of them, you can look them up on IMDb, None none are going to be remembered come Oscar time, put it that way. So I go to Lorenzo's office and he says... After we, you know, exchange pleasantries and whatnot, he says, Rick, he goes, so my next movie, it's gonna be amazing. And he goes, now normally, he goes, I, I'm i the writer, the director, and the producer. He goes, in this one, I'm gonna be the star also. And he goes, I just don't see doing all four of them. So I wanna bring somebody in to be the producer. And, uh, you know, I guess that's why you're here. So I remember some of my thoughts at the time. Um, Lorenzo, not that this matters, but really wasn't your idea of what a leading man would look like. But nonetheless, it's okay. It's an acting deal. Any, anybody could be anybody, I suppose. And after about 10 minutes of talk, Lorenzo's like, hey, the job is yours if you want it. I'm like, okay, great. So now I'm hired to be the producer on this movie. Uh, he hands me the script. He knew my history. He knows I understand how to break down budgets. He's like, hey, here's a script. Go break it down. You know, what that means when you break a script down is you plug it into a, a software program, usually a movie magic. And you look at all the various categories that are that exist within a movie that impacts a budget. Things like wardrobe locations, special effects, uh, cast members, uh, so on and so forth. So I go to read the script. Now, I had previously been in the mailroom at Triad, and then later an agent at Triad and at William Morris. And in doing that, you have to read a lot of scripts. I had taken Robert McKee's screenwriting uh, workshop, so I was pretty good at understanding the construction of a screenplay. What immediately struck me upon starting to read The Misery Brothers, and especially was reinforced after I finished it, it was absolutely the most God awful, horrible script I had ever read. And you know, right there, it kind of like told you the tale. When you go see a really bad movie and you're like, how the hell did this thing ever get made? Well, somebody somewhere had money to make it. It's really, it's that simple. So I uh, I reached out to my friend Diana who had a very experienced movie producer. Uh, the year, a couple of years previous, she had been hired to produce the Independent Spirit Awards the night before the Academy Awards every year, it's like the indie film version of the academies. She'd been hired to produce that and she did not have any live event experience. So she called me and basically said, help, I need help. Well, now I return the, the favor or disfavor. I called Diana and said, I just got hired to produce a movie. I really don't know what the F I'm doing. I need help. Can you come help me produce? Cause I've now had a budget or I told, I was told I was gonna be given a budget but could start to do outreaches and hires and whatnot. Diana comes in. I said, we need to break down this script. Uh, she goes, I've got a great first AD. So we reach out to her friend, Stuart Lesnar, who's also no longer with us. Great guy. Very, very storied uh, first assistant director in Hollywood. And those are the guys who take the script, break it down into all the categories, and come up with your budget. So by now, we are set up in the offices under Lorenzo's house. He have got this subterranean maze of offices built on this huge mansion property. The offices are pretty cool, they're underground. It's like you're in a bunker, but it's pretty cool. So now me and Diana and Stuart are down there and we're told by Lorenzo that once we get into production time, you know, that's when his, you know, normal crew, the people that do all his movies, the uh, the wardrobe master, the editor, the, the music guy, um, the casting director, he said they'll all start to fill out the offices. But in the meantime, me, Stuart, Diana, we're down there getting set up. We get out Movie Magic. We break down the script and it comes out to, I think it was like $875,000 or something like that. I may have been 900. We go to Lorenzo's office to have the meeting on the budget. and it's me and Stuart and Lorenzo. And Lorenzo says, okay, so what's the budget? And let's say it's 875. Stuart says, $875,000. Lorenzo goes, nope no, it's not. And we're like, pardon us or pardon me. He goes, it's 600,000. And we're like, Lorenzo, no, it's 875. It's broken down right here. Look, he didn't even look at the budget. He's like, no, it's 600. Like Lorenzo, you've got like cars blowing up and shit exploding and all that. It is what it is. It's on the paper. He goes, no, we're doing it for 600. So right, right then I knew that this whole thing was going to be a problematic exercise, because without looking at it, without understanding why it came to age 75, he's cutting nearly a third of the budget and making a pronouncement. Like, it's just a fact. Okay. We're there to do a job. So we are going to do our best. <laughs> by the way, Stewart, at this point, again, accredited 1st, is like, do I really want to be part of this project? You could see him, uh, uh, the reservations mounting by the moment. So we get into it, we're reading it. We're like, this is awful. This is so bad. And idea strikes me. We're thinking, how can we possibly save this thing? And we, we learned Lorenzo was not gonna entertain any ideas for any kind of rewriting, any creative changes. I mean, it was gonna go down exactly the way he wrote it. So, so be it. So one idea I had though, is I know he had a norm, a usual casting guy who would cast all his movies, but nonetheless, A notion struck. I'm like, maybe we could stunt cast this and have some fun. Now, stunt casting in the Hollywood world means it's not guys doing stunts or women doing stunts. It means you cast the roles with interesting known characters just to have an additional element. So I go to Lorenzo. Now, I said, I know you have your usual casting director, you know, your usual director of photographer, usual this, usual that. I said, but 12, 13 of these roles, I have ideas for, will you let me cast them? And Lorenzo, there are certain things he really buckled down on. Others, he barely gave it a thought. He goes, sure, do what you want. He goes, you got the budget. (laughs) Okay, great. So, I look at these, like, there's a, here's what the movie's about. Let me back up. This is when the OJ trial had just happened. And parody movies were still a pretty big thing back then, you know, the airplanes, the naked guns, all that. So, he wanted to do a sort of spoof on the OJ trial. So he had written the script, The Misery Brothers, and it's about two brothers that are standing to inherit a $200 million fortune after their father dies. They don't even know the father. They they meet the father and the father dies. They give him a heart attack. He's so horrified at meeting them. Yeah, this is all part of the script. Um, And after the father dies, the will is held up. The Misery Brothers if they can stay out of trouble for a year and marry during that period of time, they'll inherit the fortune. So anyway, what follows is a murder and the Miserable Brothers are framed for the murder. And there's my dog's barking, we all know how that goes here uh, at Talking Talk, apologies. So they're framed for the murder, it ends up with a big trial scene at the end. And one of the, um, one of the characters is a Hibachi wielding, Hibachi knife wielding judge named Judge Benny Hana, and I mean that's a restaurant chain you might know Benny Hana. And it was just like one bad, uh, one attempted joke after another, all of which are falling horribly flat. But I read this, I go Judge Benny Hana, okay, that sounds like Pat Morita from uh, Happy Days or you know from uh, Karate Kid. So I reach out to his agent, hire Pat. And then I'm able to get Larry Linville, who played Major Frank Burns in M.A.S.H., and Sherman Helmsley, who was George Jefferson, and Lou Ferrigno, and Roddy Piper. I was a huge Roddy Piper fan. I had never met him. This gave me an excuse to reach out to Roddy Piper, and I did, and hired him for this movie. Also, Eric is brought up from Chips. Uh, Debbie Dunning, who is the Tool Time Goal from Home Improvement. I had the reigning, uh, miss, uh, reigning playmate, Playboy Playmate of the Year uh, in the same scene with the reigning Penthouse Pet of the Year and no guys or girls. It was not that kind of scene, but this is a double date for the Misery Brothers who are looking to, uh, to get married. Um, Dr. Joyce Brothers, Dr. Ruth Westheimer, a Tiny Lister who many of us in the wrestling world know with Zeus from that amazing Hulk Hogan movie. Which, compared to the Misery Brothers, by the way, No Holds Barred, does look like Gone with the Wind. It's a masterpiece compared to Misery Brothers. So, I get all these people cast, and I know I'm missing some. Um, You can look at the movie. You'll see my name on there as producer, or look it up on IMDb. You'll see me on there as producer. But more importantly, and more interesting, you see this long, unending cast. Nell Carter, Norm Crosby, and again, I know I'm missing some. You are like, how do these people all end up in a movie, in this movie? Well because we reached out and asked and kind of had a nice way of doing it and b they got paid not much um but they got paid so lorenzo calls Vito's office he goes you're doing a great job casting this thing man and i'm like thank you and i was happy to hear that it was nice to get the accolade plus he and i were already clashing and butting heads on so many things it was kind of nice to have this moment he goes i'm now thinking about who should play angelo misery because michael was michael misery of the misery brothers i go okay cool um he goes you know what do you think he goes you're doing so good with the casting and i'm like oh man you know i don't know um and as i'm doing the um thing he's like i'm thinking de niro or pacino and i look at him and this is before, you know, De Niro has a rep now making some pretty bad movies. This is before De Niro started to do that. But even all these years later with all the bad movies behind him, there's no way De Niro ever would have entertained doing this utter piece of you know what. And I'm looking at Lorenzo going, wow, De Niro or Pacino, is he being serious right now? And he was. And that's just kind of an indicator of how Lorenzo operated throughout this process. It just did not seem at all founded in reality. As a matter of fact, and I'll get back to that in a moment, as far as reality goes, I was in really good shape at that point in my life, my best physical condition ever. Matter of fact, I have a photo I took of me and Lou Ferrigno poolside together. Lorenzo had a pool and we'd screw off every now and then and jump in the pool. We have our shirts off. And in, in, as far as like, this'll sound unrealistic, but Sound like a Lorenzo thing, but I'll have the photo up here so you'll see it. I was pretty darn well near as as shredded as Lou back in those days. So Lorenzo was like, "Rick, you're in good shape, man." I'm like, "Thank you." He said, "I need to get in shape for this movie." Now we're about ten weeks off from principal photography, meaning you know when the cameras start to roll. So I said, "Great, man. I'd love to make up um, a program for you." He goes, "Yeah, please do." So I go back to the office and I put together a workout program, a diet, the whole nine yards. And I'll never forget when I bring it, when I bring the uh, program to him. His office looks like the godfather's office, by the way. There was a bar, a giant bar that actually descends from the ceiling. Huge overstuffed velvet uh, and leather couches and whatnot. A desk that absolutely absolutely looks like it came from Francis Ford Coppola's godfather. I remember when I go in to bring him his program with the diet and he's like demolishing an entire chocolate cake in front of me. Um, Like I said, he wasn't anybody's idea of what a leading man might look like. Um, He was pudgy, you know, you know, I'm not going to get into the rest of it. (laughs) Again, the body wasn't there. So I lay this in front of goes like, yeah, this is great. Let's get started. So day after day after day, I stayed out, stayed after him about getting started Finally, with three weeks to go, he hadn't done one workout. There was something different every day. Kind of like the story with Tony Holm last week where he wouldn't train for the UFC fight. Lorenzo would not train to be the leading man in his own movie. Finally, three weeks before, he goes, Rick, I'm ready. What do you want to do? I go, let's go running. I was running a lot back then. We put our shoes on. We run up the hill to the Griffith Park Observatory. Now I gotta give him credit. He made it. I thought he was gonna have twenty massive heart attacks on the way there. He made it. We get to the top. He goes, "Oh my God, this is great. I really, really wish I had started this." You know, all those weeks ago. He goes, but he goes, you know what? He goes, Rick, did you see, um, you see Rocky three, uh, and Rocky four? I'm like, yeah, of course. He goes, like in Rambo two II and three, like, yeah. He goes you know the shape that stallone was in in those movies i go yeah he goes if i had just started working out back a few weeks ago he goes i would look exactly like that right now so again i'm like wow just another example of the re- the world of reality that we were operating in um you know the the tales could go on and on and i'm gonna be mindful of time but there's a few things i want to point out here because you should go go watch the trailer, don't watch the movie. You'll never forgive me if you spend two hours on this. Watch the trailer and you'll see all these different people popping up in it. He goes, you're gonna see one scene with a guy named Michael Berryman. You probably don't know the name, but you'll recognize him the moment you see him. He's a horror movie icon, Started that movie The Hill Have Eyes, kind of the wrinkly face, the big buggy eyes and all that. And Michael played the fart expert in the movie. And again, I swear I can't make this stuff up. The fart expert was called to the scene of the crime where the murders took place. And the reason the fart expert was called there is there were no clues left on the scene other than the killer. And I don't know how they, I don't know how Lorenzo in his script writing genius knew it was a killer, but apparently the killer had farted and left behind a fart that was so noxious that all these days later it was still lingering in the air so the fart expert was going to capture this and then be able to match it it's i don't know it's, you 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 tell me how that works i never understood how that was going to work I, the script certainly didn't explain it so i'm reading this part going okay we're doing pretty well in our stunt casting here and for some reason i had a, an idea come to my mind maybe maybe we can get a rock star to play the fart expert. I mean, the part was so outlandish; it would almost take, like, you know, a drunken, coked-out rock star from the the early '90s to pull this off. And for some reason, like Billy Idol, Billy Idol comes to mind because I picture, and I knew Billy Idol. I picture like this scrunched-up face smelling the fart. I'm like, perfect for Billy Idol. And I reached out to him. No interest. I somehow came up with Gene Simmons' uh, personal phone number. I called him. We spoke on the phone. I told him about the movie. Uh, he's like, send me the script, Sent it to him. Expected, I if, if, expected never to hear back. And if I was going to, I thought it'd be like, what the fuck? Are you kidding me? So he calls back. He goes, well, he goes, it really doesn't make a lot of sense, but I'd be glad to come in for a meeting. I'm like, wow, this is pretty cool. We're going to have a meeting with Gene Simmons. So we're down in the subterranean offices. It's after hours one night. Everyone has gone home except for Dennis Terramina, a longtime friend of mine who I had hired to be the associate producer, uh, who also had no movie making experience. But why should experience matter on the Misery Brothers? Dennis is in the movie, as a matter of fact. The, um, the descending bar I told you about um, is in a scene, and the bar lifts up. And standing behind the bar in a Chippendale outfit is Dennis making cocktails. Don't tell me how that makes any sense, but it happened in the movie. So Dennis and I are down in the office and in wanders Gene Simmons by himself. And he wanders down, he looks around, he's kind of already got this air of superiority about him. And we introduce ourselves and, you know, I'm Definitely not starstruck. I've met thousands over the years, hundreds if not thousands. But it's Gene Simmons. He's an icon. I was a huge Kiss fan growing up. And I was pretty thrilled, actually. So, hey, you know, nice to meet you. We're talking for about 30 seconds when he very abruptly goes, so you're not Lorenzo? I'm like, no, I'm Rick. We spoke on the phone. Yeah, I know, but where's Lorenzo? He goes, I just want to talk to the boss. I'm like, wow, okay, no problem. So Dennis and I lead him out of the offices. We go up the stairs. We end up in Lorenzo's godfather-like office. Lorenzo is sitting behind his desk. Gene is sitting on the other side of it. And Dennis and I are flanking Gene on on either side, just being part of the meeting and part of the conversation. So at a certain point in the conversation, um, Lorenzo says, so what do you think of the script? And Gene goes, uh, and Lorenzo, you know, he didn't kind of picked up on it, I guess. He goes, "Well, what about the, what about this part that we uh, called you in for?" And Gene goes, "Doesn't make any fucking sense whatsoever." And Lorenzo's like taken aback, and he's like, "Pardon me," and he goes, "It doesn't make any sense." And Lorenzo says, "Well, how how's that?" Gene says, "He's a fart expert, right?" Lorenzo says, "Yes." So I guess that means he probably smells farts for a living all day, every day, right? Lorenzo's like, yeah. And I think Lorenzo now is thinking he's proving his own argument, this all makes sense. Gene then comes up with the whammy, which is, well, if this guy's a fart expert, you have him smelling the fart left in this room and he passes out cold. Lorenzo's like, yeah. He goes, well, if this guy smells farts every day for a living, how can a fart ever make him pass out cold? It makes no fucking sense. Lorenzo goes, it's that bad of a fart. Now, I'm sitting there thinking to myself, this is truly one of the most surreal moments I've ever witnessed in, in a lifetime of surreal moments, where you have a multimillionaire, multimillionaire producer director sitting with Gene Simmons having a debate about farts and fart experts. Anyway, Lorenzo's like, it makes sense to me. Now, at this point, Gene has stood up and Lorenzo's like, what are you doing? And you can see Gene kind of looking out the window. Lorenzo's like, well, you know, let me ask you something. If it doesn't make sense, if it doesn't make fucking sense to you, why are you even here in the first place? And it's getting pretty hot and pretty testy now. Gene goes, oh, I'm here because I just wanted to work with Tom Hanks. And Lorenzo goes, what? What are you talking about? He goes, I'm not doing anything with Tom Hanks. And Gene turns, Gene goes, well, uh, your next movie, you're making a movie with Tom Hanks. And Lorenzo's like, no, I'm not. Where'd you hear that? And Gene turns and points at me. He goes, he told me that. And I'm like, no, I said Tom Selleck. And at this point, Gene has now walked around the desk while this is all going on. He's looking, he's standing behind Lorenzo, who's in his big leather chair. And he's like craning his neck out the window. And Lorenzo turns around. He's like, what the fuck are you doing, man? He goes, oh my God. He goes, I just saw this hot fucking blonde walk by, so I'm checking her out. And Lorenzo's like, that's my fucking life, dude. Gene goes, I'd sure like to fuck her. Lorenzo goes, get the fuck out of here. And Dennis and I walked Gene Simmons out. And Now this was how this whole movie went, man. It was just one freaking thing after the other. Um, we ended up hiring Leo Rossi to be Angelo Misery. We did not get uh, De Niro or Pacino or Tom Hanks for that matter. Leo's, Leo's great. You would have seen in the movie The Accused. He's made a lot of movies. Really, really a good guy. Easy to work with. Um, made a lot of neat friendships on that movie. You know, Lou Ferrigno, a friendship that lasts to this time. Roddy Piper, who I became very uh, close with up until his death. Another guy that became... Uh, I'd say pretty close friends for a while was Pat Morita. Really, really nice guy. Now, as I mentioned, Pat's playing Judge Benny Hanna, the hibachi wielding uh, judge, once uh, once we're on the court set. So this set is out at what later became DreamWorks Studios uh, Spielberg, Kaufenberg, Geffen. It's the Playa del Rey Studios at that point and we've got this elaborate courtroom set and it's nice and you know we did it on a budget for sure and this trial was just like you know it's a parody of the oj trial and just horrifically bad uh people breaking out into song and dance numbers for no discernible reason whatsoever there's no logic to this thing at all one of the great pieces of, of illogic in this movie is all of the jurors are hot girls in red, white, and blue bikinis. Now, I've never seen an all-woman jury. I've said, certainly, never seen a juror in a bikini. And I know that I've, you or I or no one else has ever seen twelve hot female jurors um, all in bikinis. So, anyway, again, there's there's no reason for it other than Lorenzo wanted to look at hot girls in bikinis while we're on set. So we we cast the first girls, you know, through a casting call. Came up with a nice crew. And the best part of this movie is, I mean, these are essentially glorified extras. And everybody in Hollywood wants to be on a movie. And these, these ladies are now on set with Pat Morita and Debbie Dunning, who's playing the defense attorney. And Norm Crosby, who's playing the prosecuting attorney. Mother Love, who's playing a witness, who sings a song from the witness stand. Or Nell no, Carter, I'm sorry. So, you know, you think of be the kind of thing somebody would be thrilled to be a part of. Well, the movie was so bad and the experience, the, the atmosphere that was created was so out of control that if you look at the jury in the movie, there there's a, a term in the movie world called continuity. You know, what it means when you cut, when you're filming a scene and then you cut and then you come back to start filming again, you want to make sure that the actor or actress is wearing the same thing, that it's on the you know the hat's on the same angle on the head, that they're you know sitting in the same spot. Well, you come back and you watch Misery Brothers. Every time you cut back to the jury box, there's new jurors there. The experience was so bad that we had these girls constantly walking off set in the middle of the movie, which would then precipitate Dennis and I, my friend, or Dennis on his own, running out to the local strip clubs to recruit new jurors. There was no time to put out on breakdowns again and do submissions. So we're just going to strip clubs. Who wants to be in a movie? Bringing them back to set. So this happens one night at about 11. About half the jurors walked out. Lorenzo was having a fit. Uh, his father came on the set. I was ready to throttle Lorenzo that night. We almost got into it. His father stepped between us. You know, the, again, the guy who was one of the high, high rank guys in Vegas. And he's like, Rick, Rick, I know Lorenzo can be trying. He goes, just keep your cool. It's all going to be fine. I'm like, okay. Yes, sir. Gotcha. So we halt production. So we have six jurors instead of 12 Dennis and I head out into the night to go find more jurors. I needed a break. I mean, he could have done it on his own. I needed a break. We come back. It's one 30 in the morning. Now we have jurors. Cause again, you know, you're basically pulling six girls from a strip club who want to be in a movie with Pat Morita. It wasn't that hard. Um, we can, an offering to pay them on top of it. So we come back, it's one 30 in the morning, Pat, dear Pat Morita. It's like Rick, Dennis, I've got to talk to you guys. And we're like, okay. And he goes, uh, this way, please. We go to a a private room off of the main set. And Pat Morita starts breaking down and sobbing. And he's like, oh, my God, you guys. He goes, I'm a 70-year-old man. I can't take any more of this. And we're like, well, Pat, what what can we do? You can't leave, please. What can make this better for you? He goes, vodka. (laughs) So... Off Dennis goes again. Now it's now it's after 2 a.m. All the liquor stores are closed. Dennis somehow got somebody. We're in Playa del Rey. It's easy to get to the uh, more questionable areas of town. And Dennis got somebody to sell him a, a bottle. Really, really bad vodka. I forget what it was now. Come back. Of course, we have no glasses or no no plastic cups or styrofoam. So at three in the morning. Me and Dennis and Pat Morita are toasting bad vodka out of styrofoam cups. Uh, it got Pat through the night. So anyway, um, again, just uh, I won't go on all day, but here, here's another one that I thought was kind of funny. Um, we're now in the aforementioned foyer of Lorenzo's house. We're doing a scene. Now, in this movie, the, the, the father that died that had the heart attack when he met his sons, was played by uh, Abe Vagoda of uh, Barney Miller in Fish fame. His uh, character name, if memory serves, was Don Frito Leone. I mean, why would that not be his name? And in some sort of Byzantine uh, plot twist, there's now another son in the mix. And that son is Tiny Lister, Zeus, you know, the six foot eight, six eight, six six, six eight, giant muscular black man from No Holds Barred, who now somehow is inexplicably old white guy Abe Vigoda's son. Again, don't apply logic to an inherently illogical proposition. He's his son. So we're in the foyer one day. Everybody was kind of over the movie at this point. Tiny has got, including Tiny, was a really nice guy. Tiny has got a long monologue. He is going through it, and you know, the delivery is not Shakespearean, you can put it that way. And the script supervisor is standing there. I'm standing next to the script supervisor, and it's her job, on, as it is in any set, for the script supervisor, man or woman, to know that script better than anybody else, even better than the writer, because they have to make sure all the nuances are matching, the things that are being shot match the script and vice versa. Tiny goes through his monologue. I turn to the script supervisor and go, what did he say? Because I could not make out a single word. His words were all indecipherable and mashed together. The script supervisor, again, who has to know this thing better than anybody, turns back to me and kind of tongue-in-cheek, she goes, I have no idea. And right on the heels of her saying that, you hear Lorenzo go, that was great. That's a take. So that one made it in the can. Um, you know, we the, the night of the uh, premiere, I'll never forget, uh i was married at the time my wife gabrielle and i met uh lou ferrigno and his wife carla who still friends with to the to this day and pat marita and his wife evelyn and the six of us went out to dinner to Benny benihana of all things you know kind of little tongue-in-cheek gag and then after dinner we went to the uh, theater that lorenzo had rented for the premiere and it was fun the whole crew was there but there was almost like a sense for, for sense of doom to see what this looked like when was finally assembled on screen and what I remember most about it is Stuart Lesnar the, the wonderful first lady I told you about before again a very serious guy uh he was sitting next to myself and Gabrielle in the theater and like every few minutes you could notice Stuart lowering and going lower and lower in his chair like sinking hunched down eventually he kind of had his hands covering his eyes and was like peeking out and then at a certain point, Stuart got up and just marched out of the theater. And uh, you know, I think that's a pretty good, uh, pretty good indication of uh, what the Misery Brothers is all about. So if you watch the movie now, um, don't say that I didn't warn you. I, you can find a couple reviews online, and they're pretty funny. Um, I remember one review is something like, "I love these parody movies." He go, he said, but this one, he goes. Unwatchable, F minus. I mean stuff like that. Those those are what the reviews look like. Uh but you know what? I got to produce a movie. I got to hang with some pretty cool people. All these years later, if I were to run into Lorenzo Dumani, matter of fact, I wrote him not long ago. I didn't hear back. Uh probably because he's heard me tell the tale of the experience on the Misery Brothers set. Or maybe he's too busy, because again, he's a very, very successful business guy in Vegas these days. But if I were to see uh Lorenzo, now, I would say uh, thank you for the experience, the Misery brothers. Let me tell you something you already know. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbows. It's a very mean and nasty place, and I don't care how tough you are, it will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently if you let it. You, me, or nobody is going to hit as hard as life. But it ain't about how hard you hit.